As I told my wife and even dropped it on Pierce uh, this morning, the older I get, the more I realize that the way I think sometimes will not communicate with young people. So I'm looking at third row there, even third row there. So I say, my row, I'm more young. But if I said, um, how does the beginning of Sweet Home Alabama go, what would you say? Some of you could, could get the notes out, but eventually you hear the words, turn it up. Turn it up. That's, that's after the... And I was going to play that, and some of you go, man, he is super gone. He's playing Leonard Skinner in church. But it's... But, yeah, amen. But Ronnie Van Zant is actually talking to the sound engineer as he has a headset on, and they're playing this for the recording, and he's saying, turn it up. He's wanting to hear better in his headset. And as they recorded it and laid that track down, they realized that it sounded so good... Just leave it in there. So if you're from my generation or if you've ever heard Sweet Home Alabama, you probably, when you hear turn it up, you reach for the volume and you turn it up. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us in Philippians, the first chapter. We're going to go backwards a little bit. I read through verse 5 last week. We started on this sermon series called Joy for the Journey based off of the book of the, the letter. And remember, I'm correcting myself. Last week I said we called it a book. It was really a letter to a church, a church that he loved dearly. And last week we talked about this partnership we have for joy. Today I'm going to say that, that Paul is speaking to us and saying, turn up that love, turn up that joy, and focus on your faith in Christ Jesus. As you find your way to the text, I want to ask you, don't raise your hand. The challenge last week was to read the letter of Philippians in its entirety aloud at one setting or standing. That was one of your tasks for the week. You also were to take uh, one of the freebie uh, thank you cards and send a thank you card to someone. And then you also were to share your faith with someone this week. Um, if you didn't do that, well, you've got another week to do it. Uh, try it this coming week. So, um, And if you hopefully were here early enough, only Ruthie, not only, but Ruthie was the star pupil who sent in a video of what brings her joy. And if you were here before the service started... I had it playing, playing there. So maybe, Royce, at the end of the service, after the benediction, maybe you can see it again. Because I ask people just to do a selfie video and go, you know, what brings me joy in my life? And she talked about uh, working on Wednesday nights at Refuel in the kitchen. So uh, I find joy on the other side, eating what you guys have prepared. <laughs> All right. Here we are. Uh, Philippians. I'm going to back up, as I said, to verse 3. And we'll go through verse 11. I even talked to my Lutheran chaplain buddy this week, and, I, and he said, you go, Cliff. That word, remember last week, I thank my God, or I thank, is the word Eucharist that is uh, often uh, used by the Catholic Church to refer, refer to the communion and the Lord's Supper. And I felt like we let other people hijack that. We should claim to give thanks for the communion for our Lord's Supper but in all things. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. I think King James says something about, say something about bowels. Yeah. He, it's a stomach hurting. I, you know, if you long to be with somebody or long to see somebody so bad, it sometimes gets down into your belly and you got a queasy stomach because of something. That's what he's, refer, what he's saying. Verse 9. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Would you pray, pray with me, please? Our Father, as we look at a familiar passage, our children in Vacation Bible School memorized uh, verse 6. Many of us feel incomplete at times. But as Paul points out, if we're only take confidence in you, because what you began, you will finish. We're all works in progress. He prays that we might love and learn more about love and love aboundingly, to let our love go and flow and grow. So Lord, today, in this moment, in this hour, as we look at this familiar passage, Help turn up the volume for us. Turn up the shouts of joy. Turn up the love that we are to have for one another, for the lost, for the less fortunate, for those who aren't like us. Teach us more of your ways. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said last week, we read the first five verses. And in those verses, we found that Paul is writing to, and a little bit of the historic background I gave you, that this is a, a church that Paul had started about 10 years prior to this letter being written. And if you know anything about Paul's letters, if you've read, you know, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, Galatians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, if you've read any of these letters of his, he often begins his letters with prayer and thanksgiving for those that he's speaking to. Now, sometimes he's got a little bit of discipline or some you know, rebuke that he's wanting to share. And he may not start off with this uh, accolade that he does like this one. But this is the book we've referred to as the Book of Joy. This is the church that he perhaps was the closest to. As we see as we go through the weeks of this study, this is a church that had supported him financially. It had supported him with manpower, it had supported him with prayer, and he felt this connection to this church, perhaps stronger than some of the others. When he prays for Thanksgiving and prays for these churches, and especially here for the church of Philippi, it seems that he is frequently praying for them to know Christ better. 
for them to love deeper and for them to live lives worthy of the calling, worthy of the faith that they have received in Jesus Christ. And I think that's a, a little tidbit for all of us right there. What you pray for gives insight to your heart. What you pray for reveals something about what's inside you. Now, I know we've all prayed for healing. We've all prayed for an assignment. <laughs> we've all prayed, yeah, and that guy over there never gave me the assignment. I wanted. I wasn't doing it. But we pray for things that are on our hearts. We pray that, you know, the, the checking account, even though you've got checks, there'll be money in there that you can pay the bills. We've we prayed for new jobs. We've prayed for our relationships. But Paul, even though he will talk about it, he'll even rattle his chains a little bit in this, these verses we have. But he always focuses primarily on growing in love and in service and in the way we live for Christ Jesus in his prayers. So if there's a challenge that you need this week, keep praying for the immediate. You're always going to pray for healing. You're always going to pray for your children. You're always going to pray for your job. But in the midst of those prayers for the immediate, turn up the volume of the prayers that Paul prayed. That we might grow in our love for one another. That we might know more of him. That we might be discipled by others. And that we might disciple others. So, first point of two, two-cent sermon. Carry on. Now, I know that's a song too. Carry on. Confident in him. Paul is confident that the work that God started will be completed. Reread verse 6, or if you are a vacation Bible school, and I wore my wristband. Uh, Dan earlier had his blue t-shirt on, I almost wore mine. Verse 6 is what our children memorized this past summer, this summer. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus. Now, I wish I was confident that all the projects I have around my house or in my office would be completed. How about you? You have any incomplete projects in your house, in your life, in work? Well, Paul uses a Greek word, patheo, which is translated confident, but it also can be translated persuade. So think about how those two words go together, confident and persuaded. What does it take to persuade you to be confident that God will complete his work in you? Are you persuaded? Are you confident that he will do what he said he was going to do in your life? I hope so. I heard somebody say yes. <laughs> well, I don't know. Well, it may mean that you have to give up control. Because as long as you try to control everything and not let God take control, you may never find yourself where he wants you to be. It might mean that you have to stop running from him and have a face-to-face -face encounter, surrendering all that you think is important to what he knows is important. Because once you see him up close, I think your confidence will grow. Just like my confidence in the St. Louis Cardinals. Somebody say amen. Amen. Fifteen in a row. Yeah, there you go. Those of us from southern Illinois pull for the St. Louis Cardinals. 
not the Chicago Cubs, sorry. Is that a house divided back there? Yeah, yeah. And did they not just, I'm sorry, who was victory number 15 over? Oh, the goat, the goat team, the Cubs, yes. But as a young man, um, I fell in love with the St. Louis Cardinals, and uh, because baseball, you know, October's coming and the World Series and all that, and that's sadly, that's often when I start following baseball, about the few weeks that lead up to who the teams are going to be and then who's going to be in the championship. Uh, I don't live and breathe it. I don't get the daily paper like I used to. Back home, you know, you always see the standings between the, you know, the East and the West and the American League team and the National League team. But anyway, um, I remembered an illustration that I heard uh, several years ago uh, about Roger Clemens. Roger Clemens was nicknamed the Rocket. Did somebody, did you say, tell him, you knew that? Very good. Because he's way before your time. 1986, I think, is one of his first years playing for the Boston Red Sox, and he is so good. I mean, he's, his fastball is so good, they call him the Rocket, and he is uh, able to play in the All-Star game. And uh, those of you who do watch it, and that's sometimes, you know, back, back when I was a kid, there were only three channels, so if a baseball game was on, that's what Dad wanted to watch. There were no other TVs in the house. You had to watch the baseball game. So. Um, 1986, I probably would have had my own TV by then, so I guess I could have turned it off. But in any event, uh, Clemens is used to having a designated hitter. Because in the American League, they were allowing that, or they allowed that, and he didn't have to bat. But as they do in the All-Star Games, they alternate from year to year the rules of the various teams. And the National League said you had to bat. So he steps up, and I, have, I, I did not remember this guy's name. I just knew the story because of what he says afterwards. Uh, he steps up against Cy Young winner Dwight Gooden, who's about, yeah, who is uh, probably as fast or faster than the Rocket. And he steps up to the plate, and the first pitch buzzes right in front of him, and he stepped out of the box, and they say, he said to the catcher, do my pitches look that fast? And the catcher said, absolutely. With that, he promptly got back into the batter's box. Two more strikes came across, and he, striked, he struck out. But he said that experience of seeing what he really did and what he could do because somebody else was doing the same thing allowed him to pitch three perfect innings after that. And he actually got the, the like the, whatever the most, uh, what do you call that guy? Most valuable player of the game. He got the MVP of the game. So he said throughout his career then, he understood what he was doing and it gave him confidence to do that very task. And if you try to put that in the context of our Christian lives, if you would think that as a church, we could have confidence that God is working in us to win people to the Lord and build up their faith, think how much more you would do if you were confident the fact that he will do that. And he will. What would we see? What could we visualize that if we knew that God is working in us? Because it says scripturally he is working in us. But sometimes you need to step up to the fastball and see it. Then you find the confidence that he is doing those things in you. What our church would be like if you acknowledge that this is the place to be. That we are involved in sharing the good news with other people. It's not just a place of fellowship. It's just not good meals on Wednesday nights. It's a place to come and grow in the faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ladies, I found this in an article called Heart to Heart. 
by Kelly Kutke, so K-U-T-K-E-Y, speaking of unfinished products or you know, projects. She said, quote, I live in a small house, so little messes seem really big. Recently, I looked at all my sewing projects, I know there's some sewers out there, and I thought to myself, if my child had left this mess, I'd be mad. Then I realized I wasn't angry at myself because in my eyes, I could see all the finished products and it was not a mess after all. And because of that, you know, aha moment, I realized and thankful that God doesn't see me as a mess. He sees me with the righteousness of Jesus and allows me to be confident that he who began a great work in me, a good work in me, will carry on to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, I'm an unfinished product, and so are you. Imagine what God will do with us if we're only confident that he will finish the work that he began. Carry on, confident in him. And second, love abound. Love abound. And you'll find in these verses where it says, love more, learn more. These verses, 3 through 11, have been compared to a tuning fork for the rest of the letter. In other words, if you know anything about tuning forks, that sound wave, that vibration that it produces, just resonates through the rest of this letter to the church at Philippians. It becomes... Paul's theological cargo echoing on the frequency of his tuning fork. His message of love, his message of unity, his message of defending the gospel, which now re should reverberate in us. Now, I had a tuning fork. I had, actually, I think there were three tuning forks when I was a high school drummer. Why are you guys laughing? I'm going to take your mask off. I'll go back there and slap you. <laughs> That's my family laughing. Because <laughs> I got another tune for you. Did you guys know I took an acoustics class in college? Taught by the man who claimed to have invented the electric guitar. He said I had a broomstick with a magnet, put a string over it, and hooked it up to some kind of amplifier. And da -da! He said the less Paul beat me to it. In any event, I had a tuning fork. Multiple tuning forks in uh, high school to tune the, the drums. I played the timpani. Not very well, but like most things, not very well, but I did it. And uh, you had these three drums. They had pedals on them. You could step on it, and it causes the head tension of the drum to get tighter or lower, so it makes it pitch higher or lower. And the fork was to help you find the note that you're supposed to do for the, the song you're playing. Of course, I leaned over most times and spoke to Jane Childers, who was the trombone player in front of me, to help me get the drums tuned because she had a better ear than I did. Because you know, I, I would get them in probably a three-note range, and she could actually get them in the right place they needed to be. Well, my father was a state trooper, and uh, speed guns were invented, if you will, or at least started to be issued to the Illinois State Police. They had two tuning forks, and that's how you calibrated and made sure your speed gun was working every day. You had a low speed and a high speed. The higher frequency, you know, the speed gun did the different thing. It might show 55 miles an hour, it might show 70 some miles an hour. And I'm getting still ready to go back and slap my wife because she is still laughing at me. She's afraid that I'm going to start humming like a tuning fork. But why that other word is up there, sympathetic uh, response, resonance, 
uh, is a geek term for sure. But once I read, and you've got to see how the Cliff Perry brain works, and it, it doesn't work like yours, maybe, or maybe it does. I read that commentator who said that these verses are the tuning fork that allows Paul's message to, you know, resonate throughout the scriptures. Then I had to start looking about tuning forks. And I go down that, you know, rabbit hole of tuning forks on videos because that's what I like to do. And let me introduce you to this key term, uh, sympathetic resonance. Yeah, it is to her. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Thank you, babe. Nobody else says amen, but you will. Appreciate it. We are the tuning forks in the church. Did you notice the other tuning fork had not been struck? But it started resonating. It started playing the same frequency, the same tone that the one that was struck because the vibrations came over it and made it start making noise. If you will start singing, loving, living as Christ has called you, those in the church will see that, hear that, watch that, and they just might start with this sympathetic resonance in their own lives. Now, as I studied tuning for, hey, you said, Cliff, stop at the tuning forks. No, I had to go deeper. And I'm not going to play you another video, but the guy had the t same two tuning forks. I didn't know you could do this. You can weight a tuning fork, put a weight on one of them or both of them, uh, of the fork part, and change the frequency, change the tone. So what he did is he put the weight on two that were just alike. They put weight on one. And when he struck this one, that one wouldn't ring. And when he struck this one, that one wouldn't ring. Now, I'm not a real physics guy, and I, although I did take one college acoustics class, my application for our Christian lives is that sometimes the weight of sin, the distractions of the world, get placed on your tuning fork of joy and of love, and it silences you. It mutes you. It makes, it's like when they touched that one tuning fork, it stopped making noise. So today, for your love to abound, there may be some things you need to turn from. There may be some things you need to let go if you desire to serve the Savior. Consider this morning what weighs you down and what is muting your pitch for Jesus. Paul says in verse 9 that he is praying. What he's, he's introduced a prayer in verse 3 or verse 4. He says, I thank God for you and all my prayers for you. But then finally in verse 9 he explains to us. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. It, two times, you know, verse four, 6 and now verse uh, 
10, he's talking about when Christ's return, if you will, the second coming, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. He uses the word here that, that for knowledge, epigenosis. Now, I pronounce the G. When you say the word Gnosticism, which is knowledge, you know, there's a, a time in Christianity where they thought that through knowledge you could receive your salvation. When we say Gnosticism, we don't pronounce the G, but that's the way I've always pronounced it. Gnosis means knowledge. Epigenosis is a word better translated discernment. Implied knowledge, but full understanding. These verses that Paul says you are to grow in knowledge and depth of insight of love are somewhat complicated for this mind to understand. How, how do I do that? And is this not in conflict with what I preached to you guys when we had our summer of love last summer? 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your Bibles, flip back in there for just a second, and we'll see if we can... If I put my glasses on, I can read what I'm flipping to. Let me look at like three times in that passage, he says something about love being superior to knowledge. But now he's telling us that we need to grow in knowledge of love. So hang on just a second with me. Look, look at verse 2. Of, this is 1 Corinthians 13. If I have, all, have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. Verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. And then verse 12. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So rather than seeing conflict, I see compliment, love and knowledge, discerning love. In other words, love needs knowledge and knowledge needs love. Paul says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And he's not talking like abound, sounds like a deer jumping off into the woods. He's not saying like bounce off with your love. He's saying like overflow. Like when you take a Coke can and shake it up and it blows out because of what's inside. Let your love abound. Let your love overflow for one another. It must be guided this knowledge of love must be guided by God's word. And in God's word, what are we called to love? We're called, or who are we called to love? Love him first and foremost, but he also tells us to love ourselves. He tells us to love our neighbor. He even tells us to love our enemies. He doesn't say love possessions. Ouch. He doesn't say love cars. Double ouch. He doesn't say love a nice yard, a nice house, a bank account. He says, love one another. Love yourself, love your enemy. I know some people, well, I can really love myself with a new car. <laughs> yeah, that's how I translate that. No, that's not what he's saying. Let me stay with 1 Corinthians 13 for just a second. This understanding and growing in love and knowing love. When I was a child, this is verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. You know, there was a day with those St. Louis Cardinals that I was so enamored by them and probably the influence of friends. So there's that 
uh, sympathetic resonance right there. Your friends love something. You knew I was going to hum the. Then it influences your friend to the same tune, doesn't it? Right? Shake your heads. I don't pull your mask down. Go, uh huh. You know, whatever. But all my friends in about the fifth grade. So this is like 1968, 69, 68 for sure. St. Louis Cardinals, I had Bob Gibson, I had Lou Brock. These are cards, you know, little baseball cards. Uh, Orlando Cepeda, Cepeda uh, Tim McCarver, Joe Torrey. I think Torrey didn't play until 69 for the Cardinals. Some of you might know him as a manager of another team that shall go unnamed. But I had all these St. Louis Cardinal cards, and they were so important to me. But then a few years passed, and now eight tracks. Tapes were important to me. Then cassettes. Then CDs. Then, I don't know, you just, magically they play on your phone. It's funny how our love focus changes. I gave all those baseball cards away to my cousin's husband. I don't know if you call him a cousin. I don't even think they're married anymore. Gave all those cardinal cards away to him in 1986. Probably gave him a million dollars of cards away. I wonder if he would take my call. But knowledge of what you love and what loves you back unconditionally is what Paul is talking about. Paul had the Philippians in his heart in verse 7. In verse 8 he says that his stomach is longing to be with them. And he challenges us to carry on and let the love of Christ abound in us and to live righteously until Christ comes again. So this morning, ask yourself, where do I place or in whom do I place my confidence? Am I reverberating the abounding love of Christ Jesus? And if so, turn it up. Stand with me, please, we pray. Our Father, as we come to a time now that we can let our love resonate through this congregation, through this worship service. If there's one here today who's never followed your son as Lord of their life, I pray in this invitation time right now, they would respond to your call. Lord, if there's someone who just wants to come to these steps and pray, the doors of the church are open. Let your Holy Spirit move in our midst. For I ask all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.